this is a first for me. What a pleasure to get to be with this group of Christians tonight. And I do know several of you from the past. I used to be dean of students. That's what he's talking about. And when I go places and they know that's what I was, they think I remember all the bad things. I don't, Mike. I remove those. I remember the good. What a pleasure to be with you tonight and, and to share with you some things from the Word of God. I am privileged to travel lots of places and to see God's people trying to do their best to serve Him in various parts of the world. And it's a joy to get to be with you in East Orange. I have some connections here. I ate supper last night with Doug Folkt. You know him well, don't you? He is a nut. <laughs> you know that. He and I met each other at Florida College 50-some-odd years ago. And uh, ended up being such dear friends that I asked him to be the best man in my wedding. I told him I was the best man, but he could serve as my best man. And we've had many years of serving the Lord together. I love him dearly. So if there's no other connection than that, I feel a closeness to all of you. So thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to be with you. And let's now not take any more time with pleasantries. Let's turn our attention to the Word of God. I'm going to begin with you this evening in Luke chapter 24. So I have a challenge for you. You see the passage before you on the screen. We're going to be reading from verse 13 through verse 35. That's a long reading. And Mike, you probably have the same experience I do, that if you read more than three verses, you just lost your audience. We live in an age, brothers and sisters, in which we are terrible readers, as a rule. We'd rather watch television. May I remind you, God gave us a book, not a video. <laughs> and we must never lose the privilege and the opportunity and the thrill of reading. So I want to challenge you tonight. I'm going to be doing the reading. I want you to open your Bibles, and I want to challenge you not to allow your mind to drift one time during this entire reading. It'll be a challenge, because you're not good at this. Neither am I. That's why I'm saying this to you. All right? So now I'm going to say for the third time... I'm going to ask you to follow along with this reading and not allow your mind to drift once. And you know part of the reason for that? It's the most important thing we're going to do tonight. This is God's Word. All I'm doing is repeating what God said. Much more important than what I said. So please help me with that. And then we'll try to learn some lessons from this phenomenal portion of Scripture. So again, thank you for the privilege. Let's turn our attention now to Luke chapter 24, verse 13 begin. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained 
so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened there these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying they had seen also a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Of all the resurrection appearances of Jesus the Christ, this is one of the longest recorded in Scripture. This one and John 21 are close. I want to stress to you tonight, and I hope by the time we leave, this will have impacted your mind more than it ever has. There are lessons to be learned from this amazing set of events that took place right here. I want to share with you some lessons. What I hope will happen is this. You're going to find 10 or 15 other lessons that could well be discussed from this same passage. But let's share some things together about this grand event. Well, I'm a teacher. I've taught mathematics and chemistry for years. And one of my techniques was often to give a quiz I told you three times to listen closely, didn't I? All right, now we're going to have a quiz, and you're not allowed to look at your book. I'm not asking anybody to answer out loud. 
but I do want you to pretend you're taking a quiver. And I have a reason for this. It's going to drive home the points I want to make. So please act like you're taking a quiver. All right, here we go. First of all, I will tell you this grand event, famous as it is, has been the subject of many paintings. Here's one. That's a Rembrandt of the three on the road to Emmaus. Does this thing have a point? It does.
And by the way, there weren't many references to it anywhere else either. Because this town is very much like a town in Florida named Two Egg. You heard of that one? Two Egg. It's a real place. Lots of luck finding it on a map. And you know why? It's a no place. Nobody would ever go to Two Egg, Florida. I mean, the only reason to go there is if you really knew somebody. Because it is some place you would never go. Well, folks, Emmaus was very much like that, even in the days that Christ walked on the earth. Emmaus was a no place. All right? So two disciples were on their way to Emmaus. Now I'd like to ask you, do you recall from the reading what day this was? This was the third day since the crucifixion. That was Sunday, was it not? The first day of the week. Ladies and gentlemen, that is only the most important day in the history of mankind. That's the day Jesus was raised from the dead. And what's he doing? He's walking along a dusty road. Going no place. Why would Jesus, the master of the universe, want to go to Emmaus of all things? Alright, here's my next question. Well, I have a little map here about Emmaus. I just wanted to show you how little we know about Emmaus. There are four main places that are identified as Emmaus. If you look over here in the corner, that's Jerusalem. And you come out on these various paths, nobody knows where Emmaus is, folks. Here are the best guesses. There's Emmaus of Josephus, right there. It's called today Quinea, that one right there. But there's another one. Here's Emmaus of the Franciscans up here. It's called El Ubebe. There's another one right there called the Emmaus of the Crusaders right here. It's called Abu Gosh, Kiriat Yiru. But there's another one based on that 160 study that's out here. It's called the Byzantine Emmaus. Now called Anwas. So where's Emmaus? Nobody knows. There's no place where they've done an archaeological dig to dig up Emmaus. Why would they? There was nothing to dig up. Have I made the point to you strongly enough? Jesus, the master of the universe. You remember what the Bible says about Jesus? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Without Him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator of the universe. And now He's been raised from the dead. And where is He going? It's utterly incredible. And then, what about these two disciples? What do you know about them? Well, I haven't gotten there yet. Let's finish this. This is a little summary. It's a no place. But what do you know about the two disciples? Let's, for example, talk about their names. Are you listening? You should be listing two names, right? Now, if you were listening very well at all, you got one of them, I hope. Because he's named, isn't he? One of them named Cleopas spoke to Jesus. Okay, so let's see. 
know about Cleopas. I'll give you a minute. You can just write everything you know. I hope you're finished. We don't know one thing about Cleopas except this passage right here. But I will tell you, if you read in various uh, scholarly works, there are pages and pages and pages written by Cleopas. And we don't know anything about him. One of the things that's guessed about him is that he's the same guy as Clopas. Do you remember that name? Mentioned in John 19, there was Mary at the foot of the cross who was the wife of Clopas. Some say Clopas, Cleopas, pretty close. Maybe that was the same fellow. And then they go on to make up stories about Clopas. Some say he was the relative of Joseph, the mother of, I mean, the father of Jesus on earth, and therefore a relative of Jesus kind of indirectly, etc., 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 page after page. It's always fascinated me how scholars can write page and page over things they know nothing about and often miss things that are right there in front of you. The fact is, class, the answer to that quiz question is we know his name and that's it. What about the other disciple? got back to Jerusalem and they met with the eleven that were gathered, somebody was saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Some people say that's the other guy. His name was Simon and they were saying he was appeared to Simon. I don't think that's right. I think it's the eleven that were saying he's risen indeed and has appeared to Simon and I think that's Simon Peter. And if that's the case, then what's the other disciple's name that I'm asking you about? And the answer is, we don't have a clue. So if you left that answer blank, you're correct. Because we don't know. Now, will you think about that just a moment? We have two disciples for which the Bible says Jesus the Christ met them on the road to Emmaus and walked with them. How long would it take you to walk seven miles? That's a while. They didn't know who he was. We don't even know their names. And they were going to a place we know nothing about. And it's the first day of the week, the day of Jesus' resurrection. That is utterly amazing to me. Jesus did not go to the high priest, he did not go to the king of Israel. He did not go to dignitaries. On the day of his resurrection, he spent a significant amount of time with two nobodies going nowhere. That is amazing. Because, folks, East Orange is an important place. But I'll have to tell you, it's a no place. There are very few people on earth that know anything about East Orange. I could hardly find it on the map myself. There's West Orange. East Orange is important, but it's a no place when it comes to the significance of things on this earth. And you, like I, are basically nobodies. We're not significant people in any sense of that normal use of that word. But I'll tell you what I learned from this passage. 
the master of the universe, who is our creator, cares about you and me. If he would spend a good portion of his resurrection day with these people, he'll walk with you in East Orange. And he'll walk with me too. Isn't that encouraging? I think that's one of the greatest lessons from this particular event that we could carry with us. I don't know if there's anything that stresses that anymore. Jesus cares. About insignificant people. Now before we leave that point, I want you to turn with me to Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And while you're turning, let me ask you another quiz question. If I were to ask you, class, Hebrews 11, you would call it the chapter of faith, of course. And you know that that chapter is filled with important people. Abraham, Isaac, Moses, Joseph, Sarah. Important people are named in that chapter. And listen, I'm not trying to say that God hasn't dealt with significant people. He's dealt with kings and dignitaries, all kinds of people. But I'll tell you what, he has never forgotten any time of history. And that's the nobodies, the insignificant people. He's never forgotten. And the end of chapter 11 illustrates that once again. So I want you to start with me in our reading of verse 35. I'll read and you listen. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. Beloved, there were literally thousands of people who gave up their lives without wanting to deny their faith. They stood up in the face of horrendous things and were not even given their names. So here's my next quiz question for you, class. Name me one person who died by being cut in half with a saw because they wouldn't give up their faith. Can you do it? Nobody named in the Bible who died that way. I'll tell you who knows the name. That's the God of heaven. And he knows your name too. And he knows what's going on in your life. And he cares about it. This passage illustrates that. He cares. Even if nobody else on earth knows what you're doing, Stand up for what's right and be faithful to God of heaven. And is that a powerful lesson to be learned from two disciples on the road to Emmaus? And by the way, I forgot to mention, of course that second disciple is a man, right? Every picture I've ever seen, every painting has two men walking with Jesus. Does that passage say there were two men? No, it does not. Could it have been a woman? Well, why not? 
when they got to the village, what did they say to Jesus when he wanted to go further? They said, come on in. Stay with us. Well, are two men living together? That's a thing these days, isn't it? God forbid. It's far more likely it was a man and his wife. Certainly possible. We have no idea who that other disciple is. But they got to be with Jesus on his resurrection day. Amazing. You, beloved, are important to God. That's lesson number one. Is that a powerful lesson? I love that. I love to think about that. I hope you leave here lifted up tonight. Float out the door. God cares about you. Second lesson that I want to pull out tonight. Were these fellows vitally interested in Jesus? You remember when Jesus caught up with them on their walk? They were probably walking fairly slowly because they were sad. And he said, what are you fellows talking about? He didn't say fellows. What are you talking about? And they said, are you the only stranger around here? You don't know what's going on around here? Jesus was just killed. And people came back and said, his tomb is empty. And you don't know what's going on? They couldn't even imagine such a thing. They couldn't think about anything else. I want to ask you, Christian, are you vitally interested in Jesus the Christ? Is that a passion? I hope so, because that's what Jesus wants. He wants people that are absolutely passionate about Him. That's what these men were. And so were lots of others, by the way, throughout time. Like, would you go to Philippians 3 just a moment? And while you're turning there, I'll refresh your memory about the Apostle Paul, who was formerly Saul of Tarsus, you remember? Sat at the feet of Gamaliel and was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of the Jews. And in his mind, the very best thing he could do for God was to kill every Christian he could get his hands on. And he set about to do it, even going to a foreign city to bring Christians back and give his voice against them. But when he finally became convinced that Jesus was the Christ, listen to what he said, Philippians 3, verse 7. The things that were gained to me, these I've counted lost for Christ, but I indeed count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. For the Apostle Paul, nothing mattered compared to Jesus. Can I ask you, my beloved brothers and sisters, is that the way it is with you and with me? Nothing matters compared to having Jesus. That's the kind of disciple Jesus wants. And that's the second great lesson to learn from these men, or man and woman, on the road to Emmaus. They were vitally interested now, we had a passage read for us a while ago in Acts chapter 8. And thank you for reading that because it saved me a little time here. Let's go to Acts 8, everybody. I suspect that's a passage you have read a thousand times if you've been a Christian any length of time. It's a very famous story of a conversion in the book of Acts. All right? Are you there? Now, don't look. 
I have a quiz question for you. I know you listened very carefully to the reading. Then you heard everything he said. All right, so here's my first question for you. Who was that that was riding from Jerusalem to Gaza that Jesus sent a specific preacher to? Who was that? Well, you know that one. That's an easy one, isn't it? The eunuch from Ethiopia. Now, my second question is this. Can you find Ethiopia on a map? I've been in 28 countries, ladies and gentlemen. Do you know the reputation of Americans? We are the nation that speaks one language, English, and we're terrible at geography. Most Americans can't find their own state on a map. I hope you're much better than that. Should Christians be interested in geography and the world? Where did Jesus send us? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. We should be interested in every nation. So I hope you're good at that. So could you find Ethiopia on the map? I think I have a map here. I'm going to make it easy on you. Because I've uh, there's got the words on it right there. There's Ethiopia. Here's the Nile River. Here's Egypt. Did you find Jerusalem on this map? Well, there's the Dead Sea right there, and there's Jerusalem sitting right there. Not identified on this map. So my geography question for you is, first, could you find Ethiopia? And second, do you know how far it is from Ethiopia to Jerusalem? I'm going to tell you it's a little over 1,500 miles, depending on where in Ethiopia that person was. We don't know exactly where he was, but it's at least 1,500 miles. Now, my next question is, why was this Ethiopian eunuch in Jerusalem to worship? Why would an Ethiopian travel to Jerusalem to worship? There are plenty of places to worship in Ethiopia. I think the only answer to that question is he was a Jewish proselyte. That was the reason to go to Jerusalem. You remember God commanded the males of Israel to go three times a year to Jerusalem because the temple was there. Very likely this dark-skinned man, because that's what Ethiopians were then and still are for the most part today, traveled all the way to Jerusalem in obedience to God. I ask you, was this man interested in worshiping God? But we learned more than that. In the passage we just read, he was on his way home from worship, wasn't he? Riding in a Cadillac. No. Riding in a chariot. And reading, wasn't he? Reading the prophet Isaiah. Have you thought about that? I want you to think about that just now. Of course. He just whipped out his Bible and turned over here to Isaiah. You know, he was in chapter 53, wasn't he? Right over here, Isaiah 53. And there it is. Let's read now. And of course, you think he was driving while he was reading? I hope not. Do you read while you drive? They tell you to stop texting too, don't they? No. This man had a driver, I can assure you. He was not driving. But he was reading. But he wasn't reading one of these. 
Have you ever seen pictures of what they had to read back then? And did you know, class, that every document that anybody read in those days was handwritten? Every single one. And uh, if you've never seen one of the ancient manuscripts of the book of Isaiah, you have missed a lot. So here's what I'm going to recommend to you. You need to get online and look at Bodum Museum. Or if you can ever go to the Berlin Museum, Bodum Museum, you will see there, and I've been privileged to stand in front of this document and look at it, the book of Isaiah that dates back to the first century. It's on animal skin. It's handwritten. Every letter written by hand. Every letter, ladies and gentlemen, is a capital letter. And they're all run together. There are no verses. There are no breaks for words. There are no breaks for chapters. There are no breaks of any kind. It's just one line after another of capital letters. One side and another side. And it's on a scroll. So you roll it out. I want to give you a visual now. Before I do that, I want you to see some paintings of this dramatic scene. There's a painting of the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. Here's another. I think they're both wrong. For lots of reasons, which I'll get back to in just a minute. But do you see what he's holding up there in front of him? That's very likely what it looked like, a scroll. So here you have the Ethiopian eunuch driving home on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza in a chariot reading a scroll. Okay? Here's what it looked like. <laughs> this was not a super highway.
But it turns out, folks, that in Ethiopia, within less than 100 years, there was a huge crowd of Christians. They started with this one man. I have an idea. He went home and told everybody. He was passionate enough to travel 1,500 miles one way and then home just to worship God. It's an incredible story, isn't it? Well, I told you I think those pictures are wrong. In the first place, my next quiz question is, what was this man's job? He was treasurer of a whole country. But you think that's an important job? He's only in charge of all the money of the whole country. That's all. And may I add to that, who is he working for? Candace or Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Did you know that's not her name? It's not. Every queen was called Candace. Candace means queen mother. It's very much like Pharaoh in Egypt. That wasn't Pharaoh's name. That was his title. He worked for Candace, the top woman in Ethiopia. Now, why would the Bible name the queen and not the king? you have any idea? Well, I'll challenge you to go do your research. We don't know a whole lot about it, but I'll tell you this one thing. It was tradition in the early years and in that first century that the king was a direct descendant of Solomon. Because you remember the Queen of the South went to visit Solomon one time? And when she got there, she said, The half has not been told of your majesty and riches and wisdom. And the tradition of the Ethiopians is she was the Queen of the South that made that visit. Of course, you probably also know that every country south of Israel says their queen was the one. But the Ethiopians are convinced their queen was the one that went to visit and while she was there, she fell in love with Solomon and married him. So what else is new? He had a thousand. Could he have married the queen of Ethiopia? Of course he could. And would he have? Well, he was making allegiances with everybody. And it got him into big trouble too, didn't it? Well, their ruling is, in their tradition, that she not only married Solomon, but she had a son by him, whom she brought home. And he became king of Ethiopia. They eventually led to believe he was the son of God. And so he was treated like a god. And you know gods don't do anything. They just accept worship. And so guess who did all the work, ladies? The queen of Ethiopia. So during the first century... Candace ran the country while the king sat around and accepted worship. And guess who was next in command under the queen? The charge of the treasury. That's why I think those pictures are ridiculous. You can be guaranteed he had at least ten soldiers gathered around him, and it was a much nicer chariot than that. My suggestion is it was a covered chariot in which he was sitting inside out of the sun, but it was still a chariot. And he would never have been sent off by Candace without a guard. You think we got secret service. So I don't think those pictures are right. 
but it makes the story even more amazing. Because here's the next question. What happened next? He's riding along trying to read, and some man walks up to him. No, he runs up to him. And he's running beside the chariot. you have this picture in your mind? Say, hey, how you doing in there? Do you understand what you're reading? And this VIP, in charge of all the money in the whole country, this total stranger, he doesn't know if he's some bumpkin from where. He says, no, I need help. And he lets him in the chariot. Which leads to my next point. Both the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and the Ethiopian eunuch were willing to humbly listen to a total stranger. Did those two disciples know who Jesus was while he was telling all that stuff to them? The Bible says their eyes were restrained. So they listened to a stranger tell them all about the message of the Old Testament prophet. So did the human. He didn't know who Philip was. But he was so passionate about learning what God said. And here's a man who could take Isaiah and then open up the whole scripture. And he listened. somebody else, he needs to think again. And especially somebody that's opening up God's Word. Isn't that a wonderful third lesson for these men? That Well, I'm going to have to stop there. Except i got a few little postscripts here. <laughs> so stay with me. But can you think of any other lessons? May I just throw one more at you? What about those two disciples when they got to the village and they said, well, why don't you come on in with us? Did they know who he was there? No, but they invited him in. You remember Hebrews said, some people entertain angels unawares. Hospitality. There's another great lesson. And many more. Here's the next thing I want to tell you. This is the postscript to this one. Are you in Acts 8? If you're not, go back there again, would you? Because I want you to read with me again briefly. We stopped at verse 35, didn't we? Let's pick up there. Philip opened his mouth and, beginning at the Scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized. Now here's my next quiz question. This is a logic question. Listen closely. What can you conclude from these two verses? Must have been in Philip's sermon when he preached Jesus. What had to be in it? Water baptism? Didn't it? And couldn't you also conclude that there must have been some urgency about that 
in the passage, because the first time he saw water, he said, what keeps me from doing this? May I suggest to you, there are many preachers in this town, lots of churches around here, when they get finished preaching Jesus, not only would you not be begging to be baptized, you wouldn't know anything about it. Or you would have been taught you don't have to do that. Wouldn't you? And I'll tell you, if preachers are doing that, they're preaching a different Jesus than Philip did. I don't want any part in it. When somebody gets through hearing me preach about Jesus, I want them asking to be baptized in water. Is there water up here? Okay, by faith. <laughs> There's water back there. I hope when we finish in a few moments, somebody in this audience is going to say, there's water back there. What would keep me from being baptized? Now, could you read on with me? We're in verse 37. Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is after one sermon class. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and Philip said, If you will come to Jerusalem in three months, we will have all the baptisms. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? No, it isn't. That's why you need to read along with the preacher. <laughs> now, most of them aren't going to be that blatant, but I will tell you they completely change what God says. Lots of times. And it's your job to figure that out. No, here's what he said. Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord cried away Philip and the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. And Bible students know why he was rejoicing because Acts the second chapter says when you repent and are baptized, Mark 16 says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. This man was saved from all his past sins. somebody you were trying to teach and you came to that verse and in their Bible it's missing? That's embarrassing. And if you didn't know that, may I suggest you better find out why that is and be able to respond. I'm not telling you. That's two more lessons that we don't have time for. But you better learn the answer to that. 